allow me to introduce Dr. Michael Mawson, who is Senior Lecturer in Systematic Theology and Ethics at the United Theological College and Charles Sturt University. Originally from Aotearoa, New Zealand, uh, he holds a uh, honours degree in history and religious studies, as well as a master's in religious studies from uh, Victoria University of Wellington, and then a PhD in theology from the University of Notre Dame in the US. Before coming to Sydney, he taught for seven years at the University of Aberdeen, Scotland, uh, making tonight a bright and warm evening uh, for him in comparison, I'm sure. Uh, his research interests include disability theology, theology and phenomenology, post-colonial theologies and ecclesiologies, and the work of 20th century German theologian and Antifa activist uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Michael is currently working on two books, one on theology and aging, and another on ecclesiology. He's previously authored Christ Existing as Community, Bonhoeffer's Ecclesiology, and was a co-editor of the Oxford Handbook of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, both published by Oxford uh, University Press. Tonight, he'll be addressing the topic, Speaking of God in the Midst of COVID-19, Insights from Julian of Norwich. What does it mean to be Christian in response to COVID-19 and its devastating impact? How do we speak of God in the midst of the widespread anxieties and fears caused by this pandemic? And how do we witness to God's truth and justice in light of the deep inequities that the pandemic has only served to further underline? In the 14th century, the mystic referred to as Julian of Norwich composed her text, Revelations of Divine Love, in response to many of these same kinds of questions and challenges. And this evening, will therefore provide a chance to listen to and reflect on her theology of God's abundant love. But uh, please join me now in welcoming Dr. Michael Mawson. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. And thank you, um, Byron, for the um, warm introduction. Um, I can't resist um, just in terms of commenting on the weather. We'd been living in northeast of Scotland for a few years and there was a scorching hot day in the middle of summer. Um, sorry, I you know, just stripped down to one jersey. Um, and I, I said to my wife Ruth, um, you know, this has got to be getting you know, to 30 degrees. And we went and looked it up and it had just hit 21. Um, so, um, you know, this is, this is nice and comfortable and I'm still, um, still at the point where I can enjoy an evening like tonight. So speaking of God, theological insights from Julian of Norwich. By February of last year, it had become apparent that COVID-19 would not be contained to China and nearby countries. So the world was facing a full-scale global pandemic. And many people's initial response, as we'll remember, especially in the West, was to begin stockpiling food and other basic items. Um, especially toilet paper. Stories began to emerge about heated arguments and fights breaking out in supermarkets and department stores, often over uh, these basic foodstuffs and dwindling supplies of toilet paper. And despite the fact that there were no actual problems with either production or supply, panic buying and stockpiling began creating shortages. 
The problems caused by COVID-19 have of course extended far beyond this consumer stockpiling. As well as, as well as its direct impact through illness and loss of life, the secondary effects of the pandemic have been catastrophic. So attempts to restrict the virus's spread through closing borders, through social distancing and lockdowns have devastated uh, national and local economies and this, in turn, has led to higher levels of unemployment, economic hardship and financial insecurity, all of which has disproportionately affected women, uh, black and indigenous peoples, refugees and asylum seekers and other vulnerable groups. And I take it um, all of this is familiar to us. Many of our political leaders responded in ways that again display a scarcity mentality. So to take an example, in a speech from June of last year, Scott Morrison unveiled plans to increase Australia's investment in long-range missiles and armaments, pointing to the growing tensions and competition for resources in the Asia-Pacific region. Morrison touted such investment as necessary, quote, in order to prepare for a post-COVID world that is poorer more dangerous and more disorderly. So according to Morrison, Australia must fight to secure and defend its own interests in this brave new world. In a different context, the US President of, at the time, Donald Trump, pressed repeatedly throughout 2020 for reopening schools and businesses, even as the numbers of infections and deaths continued to climb. In April, taking his cue from the President, the Lieutenant Governor of Texas, Dan, Patrick's, sorry, Dan Patrick, infamously insisted in an interview with Fox News that America needed to reopen, even if this would be at the expense of the lives of older and more vulnerable persons. And he said, let's get back to living, and those of us who are 70 plus will take care of ourselves, but don't sacrifice the country. So by Trump and Patrick's reasoning, the needs of the many competed with and outweighed the lives of the few. If that's the exchange, Patrick insisted, I'm all in. A mentality of competition and scarcity is elsewhere evident in the wide-scale ongoing restructuring and downsizing being embraced by businesses, educational institutions and churches as well. So just to take um, one example, uh, in the West many universities have been radically reducing staff here in Australia, um, also in the UK and in the US, often by closing programs or departments in areas deemed expendable. Um, in October of 2020, the pandemic had resulted in an estimate of, uh, estimate estimated loss of 11,000 jobs in Australia, so in the high, higher education sector, and they, um, uh, this is late last year, but they were projecting an equivalent um, um, loss um, over this coming year. And British and American universities are anticipating and making similar levels of cuts. So in light of the virus, its devastating impact and responses by politicians and other leaders, how do we as Christians, Theologians, and I take it we're all theologians, 
Christians, theologians, and activists, how do we begin to find a way forward? How do we properly talk about God in the midst of a scarcity mentality in these appeals to the need for rationalizing and defending resources? So Julian of Norwich's context. On the 13th of May, 1373, at age 30, the woman later known as Julian of Norwich received a series of 16 dense overlapping vis visions, shoeings in the Old English, visions centered around the passion of Christ as the place of God's abundant love. She received these visions while suffering an unknown illness over several days and while believing herself to be on a deathbed. Upon recovering, she records her visions um, and some reflections in a short document, um, a vision shown to a devout woman, which is now usually just referred to as Julian's short text. And then over the subsequent decades, um, now living in relative social isolation as an anchoress at the Church of St. Julian, she composed a series of longer meditations on these visions and their possible meanings. A revelation of divine love, um, often just referred to as Julian's long text. So there's some striking parallels between Julian's context and our own. Julian received these visions and then composed her reflections in a world remade, a world being remade following a pandemic. So the Black Death or bubonic plague had ravaged Europe between 1347 and 51, and so this as well, she was still a child. Um, this, the first um, big wave came through. Estimates are that a third of the population of uh, Norwich itself uh, died as a direct result of the plague. And as um, um, uh, one scholar, Grace Jensen, has summarised, people died horribly and suddenly and in great numbers. Furthermore, Jensen continues, the trauma and psychological impact on survivors was incalculable, made worse in subsequent years by further outbreaks that occurred at unpredictable intervals. And many of those who uh, died from the plague, um, um, you know, they were simply dying so fast and in such numbers that they died without receiving their final rights or they died unshriven, um, placing in question their very salvation um, according to the theologies of the time. Julian's context was also marked by political protest and revolution and most notably the Peasants' Revolt of 1381. So, um, as Amy Laura Hall notes, Julian received her first visions during a time when peasants were calling for an end to serfdom, burning buildings, and they even invaded the Tower of London. So the instability and desperation that had been caused by the plague and the famines that had resulted had created a situation where some were willing to risk open rebellion. And this uh, rebellion extended to Norwich itself, where Julian was. So in June of 1381, Geoffrey Lister uh, led a small group of rebels and they captured and briefly managed to occupy the Norwich castle. And then Lister and his comrades were rounded up, put on trial and executed by the Bishop of Norwich. As in our own context, political leaders sought to use both plague and rebellion as cover for accumulating and extending power. And we might 
you know, in terms of our context, we might think of examples such as um, Hong Kong, um, Thailand, um, Algeria, Hungary, Israel, and others. So this wider period, um, this wider medieval period was marked by an increased centralization of power into the hands of a small number of monarchies in the papacy. And this process is reflected in a series of conflicts which are now known as the Hundred Years' War, uh, waged within and between um, England and France. And so this war, this Hundred Year War, um, or you know, series of, of uh, ongoing conflicts broke out in 1337, so just six years before Julian was born, and it only uh, really wrapped up um, several decades after she had passed away. So her whole life is sort of um, has um, um, violence in the background. Continual warfare required both the constant supply of soldiers for armies and funds in the form of taxation, placing further pressure on an already decimated and desperate local population. So all of this indicates the background of Julian's life and her theology. And we do her a disservice if we simply read this as a contemplative theology or a mystical theology. She received her visions and composed her meditations in the midst of trauma and in the midst of these challenges. And even while she doesn't make direct reference to this wider context, what I want to suggest tonight is the substance and forms of her theology are contesting many of the basic assumptions held by those holding and exerting power. So it's a subversive theology, even if it's not always um, um, directly or obviously so. And this is especially the case with her central insistence on the sheer abundance of God's love and grace. So I'll now... Um, uh, move to uh, some of Julian's theology more directly. So Julian's theology in language of abundance. So Julian's theology is a theology of God's goodness and abundance. And this just comes through um, again and again. Her visions and her meditations consists consistently witness to a God who intimately embraces and lovingly upholds humanity. Um, so just to take a quote, our Lord showed me how intimately he loves me. I saw that he is in everything that is good and comforting and helpful to us. He is our clothing that enwraps us and enfolds us, embraces us and wholly encloses us, surrounding us out of tender love so that he can never leave us. So for, Ju for Julian, God's love reaches down and tenderly embraces all human beings and does so um, without regard for worldly boundaries or hierarchies. These visions of intimate boundary-crossing love are focused on the cross. So she receives her visions while she's lying in bed, um, thinking that she's on her death deathbed and gazing at a crucifix which is being held before her by a parson. And um, most of her visions are focused pretty closely around Christ's bodily suffering and dying, um, and you know, there's a sense in which it's, it's almost a sort of ex exegesis of um, the passion and the different stages of the passion. One of her more memorable visions, in one of her more memorable visions, she sees copious amounts of blood pouring forth from Christ's wounds following his whipping or scourging. Um, 
and it sounds for me, I don't know how many people will remember this, but the, uh, Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ, so um, it, it sort of has that kind of imagery or you know, a B-grade horror movie or something like that, so the blood just keeps coming and coming. The blood, the hot blood ran so abundantly that neither skin nor wound was to be seen, and it was so abundant to my way of seeing that it seemed to be that if it had been the real thing in nature and essence, it would have saturated the bed with blood and overflowed all around. So what, what's the significance of, of these visions of um, overflowing, saturating blood? So we need to remember this is in a context where bloodlines are very carefully regulated. So it matters you know, who you marry, um, and this is how hierarchies are preserved. This is also a context where access to the Eucharist is highly restricted. Um, so there's a sense in which you know, only um, certain people at certain times of the year um, would, would drink the wine or um, take um, um, Christ's blood. So Julian has a vision of Christ's blood being abundantly and copiously poured out and made available to all. So these sort of endless supplies. So both her focus on God's abundant love and then some of this blood um, imagery testifies to abundance. If the substance or the content of Julian's visions witness to God's abundant love in Christ, here I want to suggest that the very forms of her theology also testify to this abundance. So not only what she's talking about, but the ways that she's talking about it. Her dense complex language and imagery continually exceeds and disrupts more linear and conventional ways of speaking about God in the world. And I'll, I'll spend some time um, teasing out um, um, what this means and what's at stake with this. She refuses to restrain herself to more accepted and acceptable ways of doing theology. And here it's possible just to draw attention to a few um, of these um, um, abundant or unruly features of her language. So first of all, it's significant that she composes her theology in the vernacular. So she writes in English um, when all respectable theology is being written in Latin, you know, in very precise forms that require um, a certain kind of education um, um, and all that comes with that. And she, um, you know, as um, I'm sure many of you know, she's often credited with being the first uh, woman to write a book or text in English, um, so the first one that we um, know about. So rather than using the more respectable and precise forms of Latin, she instead opted for a language that was riskier, messier, closer to the ground. And to take a quote from Hall, vernacular theology describes Christian writing by people without explicit churchly power, written of the language written in the language that people working in the fields would speak, if not read. So um, Julian sought to communicate God's abundant love in the common tongue. With all its hybridities, inconsistencies, neologisms, um, which is to say, you know, just, just the ways in which this was a messy language. You know, it's not, we think of English today as a sort of international language with pretty set forms. And this is still at the point where it's, it's um, um, all over the place. And this is risky business, writing, choosing to write theology in this way. So others had been um, burned at the stake um, in the um, decades uh, prior to Julian, and others were after as well. So 
Um, so by sort of opting to go in this direction or being willing to sort of write, it's, it's by no means certain that um, things are going to work out well. In addition, Julian uses language in ways that are often playful and poetic. And here, here I want to draw on the work of uh, Donielle McRae, who's a womanist theologian, so an African-American uh, theologian who um, writes about Julian as a performance artist, uh, both in her lifestyle as an anchoress who's um, um, living in the middle of the city, but also in the ways that she's um, using language and the ways in which she's reaching out to people through language. As McRae writes, um, the ways she uses rhyme, meter, and alliteration. And McRae draws all sorts of parallels with um, rap music and other things as well. As an example, McRae points to Julian's use of uh, rhyme and alliteration in her descriptions of Jesus' dying in the Eighth Vision. Um, and it comes through even more strongly in the Old English. But at the beginning, while the wounds were fresh and bleeding, the continual pressure of the thorns made the wounds wide. So McRae suggests that Julian is using language in ways that are performative. She's not simply um, describing or representing God's love. She's trying to sort of um, um, impact her audience directly or speak in ways that sort of draw them in. And um, as McRae puts it, she seeks to create an experience through her language that's both cognitive and effective, an experience that leads to spiritual formation and ethical development. There's a linguistic abundance in how Julian folds and collapses images into one another. So in a famous reflection in her 14th vision, she describes Christ as mother. Christ is a mother who gives birth to us in joy, into joy and endless life. So she begins with this language of Christ as mother, which has um, drawn a lot of attention. But she then sort of mixes her metaphors and so proceeds to suggest that as a mother, Christ, um, and I quote, can lead us intimately into his blessed breast through his sweet open side and reveal within part of the Godhead in the joys of heaven. So um, she starts with a maternal image, Christ as mother, but then sort of folds it into Christ's wounds um, or sort of being birthed through Christ's wounds in ways that transgress uh, gender norms or, you know, destabilise bodily and linguistic boundaries. Um, so, you know, she starts in one place and you're never quite sure where you've ended up or what's going on by the, by the end of the passage. She layers and enfolds images in ways that are bewildering and disorientating to the reader or to the listener. Julian's also unwilling to confine herself to a single line of interpretation. Instead, she attributes different and even conflicting meanings to some of her visions. So one place where this is apparent is her lengthy reflections on the parable of the Lord and the servant. Um, and this is you know, one of the most um, famous parables that's uh, cited from her work. So she has this vision of, uh, of a Lord um, who's sitting on a throne and issues a command to the servant. And the servant in his eagerness to obey, um, uh, runs off but stumbles, falls over, and can't seem to get himself back up. And she, um, she sort of, you know, over several pages or at some length, um, explains the whole parable with um, um, the Lord being God and the servant being Adam who falls into sin 
and um, can't rescue himself from that situation. But having provided this first reading, in which she identifies the servant as Adam, she then reflects, I could not understand it fully and to my satisfaction, for in the servant who represented Adam, I saw characteristics which could in no way be attributed to Adam alone. And so she just um, stops, puts that to the side, and um, provides a second entirely different reading in which she now identifies the servant as Christ. And she just um, juxtaposes or layers these two readings um, one after the other without attempting to sort of reconcile them or sort of say how this fits together or step back and um, um, you know, explain what she's doing. And the sheer abundance of meaning within this vision or this parable can't be contained to one interpretation. Um, and so that, you know, that's a clear example of it, but I'd suggest that all the way through her theology this is going on. You know, she's using imagery, sometimes she's interpreting it, but even then her interpretations aren't, aren't fixed or um, um, aren't certain. And finally, so just a final point on the forms of, uh, the abundant or unruly forms of Julian's theology. She employs apocalyptic language. So she makes use of the kind of language that's to, familiar to us from the book of Revelation in the New Testament. You know, she, um, in her fifth vision, she writes that the devil will be scorned at the last judgment by all those who will be saved. You know, laughing at the devil. Um, will be scorned by all those who, be, who will be saved, whose constellation the devil greatly envies. The misery and tribulation that he would have liked to have brought upon them shall go with the devil forever to hell. And uh, she elsewhere imagines the devil continually tempting her to despair of God's love and grace. And you know, just, just in the same ways that the book of Revelation is, is a you know, complex, um, polyvalent, unstable text, um, her own sort of use of that kind of language comes through as well. With the devil's final judgment in her theology, all temptation to despair will be overcome. And as with uh, John of Patmos, in the midst of persecution and suffering that Julian's responding to, she boldly proclaims a time when all shall be well or when Christ will wipe every tear from their eyes. Um, so, so now I sort of want to uh, do something a little different and just um, talk about um, why I think unruly language or unstable language um, has a kind of politics inherent in it. Um, or or there's, there's a kind of political resistance that's going on um, even with this um, you know, complex imagery that comes through in her theology. There's a politics inherent in Julian's abundant unruly language. Simply by speaking of God in these complex and excessive ways, Julian is contesting and displacing many of the, the assumptions of those aiming to wield power and enforce order. Julian's language of abundance contests language of scarcity and competition, as well as the assumption that violence and control rather than love, is a necessary response to trauma in a disorderly world. And to be clear, Julian does not directly challenge the ecclesial and political authorities of her day. And remember, it was the bishop who sort of rounded up the rebels and executed them. So the, the links between the political and ecclesial authority are, are pretty strong here. Um, and indeed, she's often very quick to proclaim her orthodoxy and her willingness to submit. Um, she writes, in all things I believe as holy church teachers. So 
So, um, you know, she goes out of her way to say, um, um, you know, I love the church, I'm fully on board with everything they say, but then she sort of goes and just says um, um, all of this crazy stuff um, immediately after. Um, you know, um, does she protest too much in, in, in sort of um, having to proclaim her orthodoxy so vocally? Julia's form of resistance is not direct, it's subtler and closer to the ground. You know, she simply writes in unruly ways of God's love in Christ, but in doing so, she breaks with and exceeds the kind of linear language and thinking that facilitates and regulates control from above. And so this is what I want to press into a little more. So more recently, um, um, Judith Butler, who's a, um, a philosopher and theorist, has drawn attention to how linear common sense language and thinking on some level always serves the status quo. So in early 1999, the conservative um, journal in America, Philosophy and Literature, named Judith Butler as their annual winner of the Bad Writer competition. And they took a couple of sentences from her work and um, you know, said this is just um, philosophers and theorists out of control. Um, um, the, the journal had invited readers to submit the ugliest, most stylistically awful sentences that they'd discovered over the preceding year. And this naming and shaming of Butler as a bad writer received a widespread coverage in the US, both in academic but also in more mainstream newspapers. So in March of um, 1999, Butler responds with an op-ed in the New York Times, um, a bad writer bites back, um, she called it. And she first notes that the targets of philosophy and literature, or the targets of this journal over the preceding years, have invariably been scholars on the left whose work focuses on topics like sexuality, race, nationalism, and the workings of capitalism. So in other words, these accusations or these awards of bad writing aren't simply political, politically innocent or neutral. And this leads Butler to reflect, why are some of the most trenchant social criticisms often expressed through difficult and demanding language? And in her op-ed, she further suggests that it's the very nature of critical, uh, by its very nature, critical scholarship must involve reflecting upon and interrogating conventional and commonly held beliefs. She writes, scholars are obliged to question common sense, interrogate its tacit presumptions and provoke new ways of looking at a familiar world. And this is because much of what passes for common sense is itself highly questionable. So she notes, for decades of American history, it was common sense in some quarters for white people to own slaves and for women not to vote. So appeals to common sense or straightforward language can too easily facilitate injustice by preventing critical thinking and preserving the status quo. And further, she insists that interrogating common sense assumptions necessarily requires unfamiliar patterns of thinking and writing. And this in turn requires kinds of language that often break with or fall outside of what's considered conventional, commonsensical, or good writing. And on this point she quotes um, the critical theorist um, Herbert Marcuse. If what the social critic could be said in terms of ordinary language, he would have probably done so in the first place. So in other words, imagining and articulating how things might begin to be otherwise indifferent 
will often require new and challenging forms of writing and speaking. So Butler can help us to recognise what's at stake with Julian's excessive and unruly theological language. So Julian's unruly God talk is itself central for how she imagines and proclaims God's abundant love in the midst of trauma and violence. Uh, Julian's vernacular theology, with its playful and poetic style, with its layering and enfolding of images, with its multiple lines of interpretation, and with its apocalypticism, is integral to how she imagines and proclaims a different reality. You know, in the midst of uh, her own context of plague and trauma and revolt, um, you know, it's through this language that she imagines how one people are joined together in God's love and Christ's blood. So her very unwillingness to follow the rules of what constitute good theology and writing is itself a form of protest. Okay, so um, I'll move to my conclusion where I just want to sort of step back a bit and um, um, think about what all this means for us. So what can we learn from Julian's excessive, unruly ways of talking about God? How can her abundant language assist us in the midst of COVID-19 and with responding to the many challenges that we're facing today and will be facing for some years to come? Julian's politics of linguistic abundance, I'd suggest, can continue to engender and support rich, complex forms of resistance and protest. And more specifically, attending to Julian's unruly theology and language can assist us with unravelling and overcoming assumptions of scarcity and competition in our own contexts, as well as the need for um, self-preservation, uh, whether through stockpiling or through defending resources. So in the context of the present crisis, and I do think we should name what we're in as a crisis, some of us will no doubt have options for more direct kinds of resistance and opposition. Those of us with a relative level of privilege will have options for contesting language of scarcity and, uh, and rationalisation outright. Um, and we'll have options for contesting the ways in which our politicians and our other leaders are drawing on and mobilising such language. You know, many of us will be in positions to invoke norms of justice, rights and equality in order to push back against this kind of rhetoric and these kinds of troubling developments, and we should absolutely do so. Um, many of us will be in positions to organise or join demonstrations in direct solidarity with those who are experiencing actual scarcity and oppression. For other people, however, these more direct forms of protest and resistance may not be so readily available or so viable. For those living under oppressive regimes or in more precarious situations, resistance and protest will sometimes need to proceed in ways that are much messier and much closer to the ground. And this, in turn, may involve adopting and deploying excessive and abundant kinds of language precisely um, um, of the type that we see in Julian. Um, so what I'd suggest is that attending to Julian's theology or her unruly God talk can help us to be a little more sensitive or to recognise uh, some of these messier, more complex uh, forms of resistance and protest 
that emerging, uh, are emerging in various places. For all of us, uh, Julian shows how speaking of an abundant God and how speaking abundantly of God can itself displace and challenge the logics of scarcity and competition. So she reminds us that we worship a God whose love is continually transgressing human boundaries and hierarchies. Julian's unruly language and theology witnesses to an abundance that exceeds and scrambles all attempts at economic rationalisation and political control. So through God's abundant love in Christ, all human beings are joined together and affirmed as worthy of love and protection. And as part of uh, Julian's very last vision, she receives a promise and assurance from God. You shall not be overcome. In these words she reflects, were said to me very distinctly and very powerfully against the tribulations that may come. These words, you shall not be overcome, were said to me very distinctly and very powerfully against the t tribulations that may come. He does not say, she continues, you shall not be perturbed, you shall not be troubled, you shall not be distressed, but he said, you shall not be overcome. So as we too respond to the many challenges that we're facing, may we hold in faith that we shall not be overcome. Thank you. I might kick us off, uh, if that's all right. Um, so my question is, um, uh, if the language of scarcity and competition is wielded by those in power in order to justify the further consolidation of their own power, can it also be the case that a, a theology of abundance um, could similarly be used in a uh, pacifying, quietistic uh, way um, if, if those in power um, just sort of uh, say there's, there's uh, uh, you know, if, if, there's, if there's plenty, then why are people complaining, um, in a sense? And so I guess it doesn't matter who articulates a theology of plenty. Um, of course, you, you, you spoke about uh, those with more privilege who are able to participate in protest, um, needing to name actual scarcity, yeah. um, but then spoke about the resistance of... Uh, Julian in her abundant language and, and theology of abundance. Um, yeah, so I guess I'm, I'm just wondering, does it matter where that language comes from? So I, I do think it matters where the language comes from. I, I also try, you know, I perhaps could have done this clear, clearer, but I tried to make a bit of a distinction between a scarcity mentality and actual scarcity. Because, you know, there's clearly situations of scarcity that... Um, um, you know, call for response and, um, you know, should elicit deep um, concern. And, you know, perhaps that's first and foremost what we should be giving our attention to. But, but here I'm sort of trying to track with something slightly different. And, you know, using those examples of, uh, you know, suddenly can't buy toilet paper because, um, you know, something odd has happened there or, you know, Morrison's speech or some of these other things. So I think, I think that's... That's what I'm most worried about, is, is how appeals to scarcity lead us to act in certain ways and allow, for, 
various kinds of leaders to justify certain responses and behaviours. I don't, yeah, I don't, I, I, like I'm sure there's ways that language of abundance could, could also be abused, but I, I just can't see that sort of going on in quite the same way. So maybe, you know, maybe if that starts happening, I'll um, have to retract this and write a new talk and um, you can invite me back or something. Yeah, yeah. But I can't, yeah, I can't think of many um, dictatorships at the moment that are sort of saying, um, you know, there's plenty of everything, that's why we're, um, that's why we need to oppress you. Yeah. Or take away your rights. Yeah. Yes, no, thank yeah. you. That's, that's a helpful uh, distinction. Now, uh, opening up to others. Comment. Yeah. So, you shall not be overcome. Um, it is very reassuring. Mm. Um, in this life, or <laughs> is it in the context of um, the resurrection? Yeah. What's your view? Yeah. Um, it's unclear. So, so th this is, you know, Byron's comment doesn't matter who's saying these kinds of things. This is where it absolutely matters. So, Christ, Christ saying to Julian, yeah, "You shall not you be shall overcome." Not, you shall not be overcome. Yeah, yeah. Um, and she, you know, she's she's receiving this, you know, receiving this final vision, in the midst of her own doubt and despair, where mm -hmm. she's suddenly unsure whether everything she's received up to this point is from God or whether it's just her own. Um, fervent imagination. Um, so she's, she's receiving a word of consolation in the midst of suffering and doubt. Mm. Um, and, you know, even if, if we sort of step back a bit and think about um, Christian language of the afterlife, it, it works in different ways depending on who's using that language. So if it's the cry of the oppressed that, um, you know, all our tears will be wiped away, mm. that's different from are those of us who are wealthy getting to live forever. So, um, um, you know, that, so that, you know, even, even that sort of, it, it matters where it's coming from and it, it works differently in different contexts. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Does that, does that make sense? Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't know. All I can say is that, um, particularly in the context of, you know, COVID and yeah. Yeah, our world now, um, although it's difficult to understand, it is reassuring that, you know, you shall not be overcome. Yeah. Um, and, you know, Julian's yeah. not, you know, people are dying around her and, you know, the yeah. world's falling apart. So she's not, so we might, ret we might read that as her retreating from the world mm. and, and, you know, simply refusing to look out outside of her anchor hold and what's going on around her. And that may well be the case, um, but we could also sort of see it as a claim of faith that even in the midst of all of this mess, you know, God is here, yeah. um, um, providing us with hope and love. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah Emmanuel, I'm, I'm with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah thanks. Um, I have no difficulty in understanding the, at least understanding at least partially, the contrast between scarcity and mm. abundance as, mm. as almost as absolutes. And I was reflecting on, on why the scarcity outlook is so dominant in our present thinking. And I was conscious of the difference 
between the scarcity of toilet paper in Sydney and the scarcity of oxygen in India mm -mm. and the scarcity of quarantine places in Australia. And it, it seems to me that the absurdity, and it was absurd, of the scarcity of toilet paper, yeah. apart from its comic aspect, but as I, as thinking that was literally bankrupt, both in its perception of a problem yeah. and the way to solve it, it was, it was just, it had no redeeming quality whatsoever, that whole scenario. And yet in terms of the dominant outlook, that, 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 that consideration is just swept aside. Mm. It's of no account that the, the dominant scarcity that Morrison would like to talk about, if you like, is the scarcity exemplified by the scarcity of oxygen in India and he won't talk about perhaps the scarcity of quarantine places in Australia. Yeah. And it just, it just, it just, I'm just daunted by the fact that the, regardless of how rewarding the perception of abundance as a, as a means of addressing all these problems is, I'm daunted by the fact that the, sca the scarcity seems to win in yeah. terms of making people scared of scarcity, yeah. if you like. Yeah, no, that's right. That's excellent. And, it, you know, maybe that... So, so I've, I've set it up as you know, a scarcity mentality and then some of the some of the ways that that gets manipulated or used. It may be clearer for me to say, you know, a politics of fear or something like that, a politics that's driven by, um, um, you know, fear in the sense of needing to close borders, um, accumulate what we have and not care for others. Um, so maybe, maybe the sort of fear scarcity language would be a better way of keeping actual scarcity um, um, separate from what, what I'm sort of trying to track with here. Yeah, yeah. It's a reflection that um, fallen human beings, sinful human beings, we try our best, but perhaps our natural disposition is to hoard rather than to think of the common good and that's our human failure collectively. Yeah. Uh, and and Julian, Julian's commitment is that freeing us from that fear um, will help us love and serve one another better. So if we're, if we're constantly worried about, you know, um, do we have enough for our kids to get into the right schools or for, you know, a, an enjoyable retirement and these sorts of things, that's going to it's going to have an impact on how we live. Um, yeah. And it, it's very natural to um, think like that. It's very hard. Um, and what, one of the things I like about Julianne is you get that sense that she's constantly trying to convince herself or reassure herself. So it's not that she's dealing with problems that are out there. She is, but she's also, you know, it's, it's also sort of deeply reflective or she's trying to sort of um, work through her own doubts and her own sort of insecurities in the midst of, you know, these visions and what she thinks God's telling her. Um, and, you know, even the scarcity mentality, like, you know, we... Um, like, I, I use this sort of toilet paper example as a joke, but, um, you know, you also do think, well, 
is there toilet paper in the supermarket? I better buy it and just in case. So it's not, it's not that this mentality is just, you know, these people down the road or something like that. It's, it runs through all of us, and you know, all of us are sort of worried about our own survival. Um, so that, so I think, I think she's trying to sort of break a logic that's that's um, that emerges in, in difficult times like ours, but is perhaps perhaps always there on some level as well. Just following on and picking up from that, thinking about obviously with COVID, there's been a drawing in. You know, everybody sort of mm. you're isolating. Um, I've seen around in in our community a loosening of connections because people are sort of pulling in, and and I think there's something which sort of taps into some of the um, I don't know. Just it's almost like a practice that informs scarcity or fear or you know ways you yeah. draw into yourself and your your people. I guess thinking about are there things to learn from Julian about, you know, we, we're learning that her language is sort of retraining her thinking, yeah. but, but were there things, are there ways that we embody God's abundance in our practice of, of living and, and did she have things that, you know, did this flow out into behaviours that were, you know, that showed abundance in a more radical way or, I don't know, I guess just thinking about how, how do we live this too, yeah. Yeah, um, so in terms of Julian herself, we really don't know. You know, we, we have her texts and we have a little bit of um, hagiography that came later, um, but we just don't know much about what her life was like. Um, we know she was an anchoress because she sort of says that at the beginning. We don't know exactly when she, and as an anchoress, she would have lived in... Um, you know, in a walled cell within the church, um, you know, perhaps with a window to the outside where, you know, people could come and speak to her. But, but it was a pretty unusual existence, you know, social isolation taken to the next level. Um, um, so we have, you know, we have her theology, and I'm reading it as a, you know, kind of intervention into the trauma that's going on around her and within her. Um, I, the, um, I, mentioned a, a, I mentioned Amy Laura Hall, and I had a few quotes from her scattered throughout. So she's a Christian ethicist who's based at Duke and wrote a book called Laughing at the Devil, which is really what got me interested in Julian of Norwich. And she, she really sort of draws out some of these threads and weaves Julian through a sort of post-9-11 context and her own, you know, some of the struggles of her own life. Um, so I think she sort of helped me to see some of what I'm seeing in Julian, and my gamble is that there's a, this leads to a different way of living and a different politics, but Julian herself, we just, yeah, you know, we can guess, but. I'm not sure if I can put these thoughts clearly, but um, two things. One is, from, one is being comforted or told that they, you are doing well and, or you shall, um, um, you shall not be overcome and that sort of thing. It reminds me of the, uh, um, uh, the things that uh, Jeremiah was criticising, that you say, peace, peace, and there yeah. is no peace. So, and, and the other one was that um, the, the, the messy language and the mixed metaphors and everything, as far as I can see, are coming from more from government statements than they are from any people <laughs> who, seem, who seem to be trying to get over some kind of spiritual message. 
And in both cases, I think what's, what's important and, and what makes the thing work is that you're trying to work towards some kind of objective truth. Mm. Um, you can use these things in these different sort of strategies or ways of thinking or messy words to say this isn't, I think you'll find this is a bit more complicated than mm. you think and, and, and messy words to say to, uh, to confuse people. Uh, you, can, you can do things in, in, in um, use the strategies or ways of behaving in ways that, that are helpful and ways that are just trying to fool people. Yeah, and I, I, and I don't line up the clear, clear speaking with the people in power at all. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure there's a way in which, um, you know, our politicians and others can use obfuscation or language as a, um, you know, a means of avoiding the truth. Um, but I think, you know, a problem is as Christians we have the Bible, and the Bible is, you know, a set of messy texts that um, teach us very different things about God in different places and, um, you know, again, have, have layers of meaning that emerge over time and through prayer. And it's, you know, we don't have a sort of clear set revelation. We have a God who comes to us um, in the midst of things, in the mess of things, both in scripture and in our lives. And Julian, rightly or wrongly, just wants to sit a bit closer to that. So wants to sit a bit closer to, um, you know, the ways in which things are, um, uh, you know, not not linear and not straightforward. Um, so, yeah. So, so I, t I take your point absolutely that there can be. I work in academia, so there's you know there's a lot of work that is obscure in ways that are unnecessary and in ways that are. Um, you know, are doing a violence of sorts. Um, my gamble is that Julian's not doing that, and that that, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And, and I, I briefly drew the parallel with, yeah, in the, um, like I briefly drew the parallel with the book of Revelation, and there, you know, there's someone who's just written a book on um, Revelation's influence on Julian, um, and you know, I, I think that's the sort of best parallel that some of us will be familiar with. You know, what do we do with the book of Revelation? Well, as Protestants, most of us just ignore it and hope it'll go away. Um, or, you know, some people just, um, you know, read it in ways that aren't attentive to the, you know, the dense um, poetic imagery and language and then come out with, you know, these very, um, um, you know, predictive interpretations. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, thanks for that, Mike. Um, I'm not sure what my question is, but maybe if I end with an upward inflection, it'll sound questioning. 
Um, I'm fascinated by this idea of um, unruly God talk as a way of cultivating um, more complex and messier forms of resistance. Um, mm. As you know and others know, I, I work as a chaplain um, in mental health care settings in South West Sydney um, uh, with people with complex and severe long-term um, mental health challenges. And in my role as a chaplain, I hear very unruly God talk yeah. every day. Um, uh, of course, people say they're mad, but um, often, um, very often, I see there's genuine faith under the layers of um, what we call delusions and psychosis and all sorts of things. Um, but also it is a form of resistance. It's a form of um, survival through great trauma and tribulation for a lot of people. Uh, and, and COVID has really heightened all that uh, in my experience. Um, as, as far as I'm aware, the longest lockdown in Australia didn't happen in Melbourne. It happened in Liverpool, uh, in the hospital that I work in, where people on our severe mental health wards were locked in for a whole year with no, no leave, uh, very few visitors, um, lots and lots of extra restrictions that most of us who... And they haven't done crimes, they're just in there because they're unwell. Um, uh, yeah, uh, this this idea of unruly God talk as a resistance to all that stuff that just the normal life on a mental health ward, but as well the COVID life on a mental health ward, which kind of heightened and um, made all that. I don't know what my question is. Do you have any thoughts on how? I'm sure people now would read Julian Norwich and think she's fallen out of the tree. She's off a rocker, but. Um, and there have been readings that have, um, you know, even from fairly early on, that sort of mm. said this: this is the ravings of a woman, or you know, someone who's um, just just mad. Mm. Yeah, but, um, I, I, I'm happy for that to stand as a comment. Yeah, a no, ramble. No, I certainly, <laughs> I certainly don't have anything profound to say there, other than that, yeah, like that's fascinating. Sort of thinking about um, resistance in the midst of mm. of that context. Um, I, so, um, Matt was with me yesterday listening to a presentation, presentation by Hidden Carr, who's a prominent uh, Māori theologian and scholar. And Hidden has done work on the Māori prophets, which are a series of um, Māori religious leaders through the late 19th and early 20th century in New Zealand. And they, like, like Julian, they they're making, um, they're having visions, they're sort of um, doing odd things with language in the midst of uh, their struggles against colonisation. It's coming at a period where direct forms of resistance have failed, the, landlords have been, uh, the land wars have been lost, and that's when religion sort of um, you know, becomes prominent in a different way and you know, Duakinana is kind of claiming to be the second son of God, and you know, other others are sort of making these kinds of pronouncements. And you know, we could just sort of say these people are all heretics, um, and it is probably true. Um, um, but there, you know, we do them a disservice if we sort of don't attend to the resistance in the midst of the, um, mm. you know, of, of some of this sort of instability and, and yeah. things. And, yeah, to be honest, I've never thought about it in that context, but I'm sure there's, I'm sure there's it's quite a specific context. Yeah, no, no. Um, yeah. Yeah. 
I'm interested that you said um, that a lot of it, you wonder whether she's trying to convince herself as well yeah. in that constant repetition, um, which I think in some ways has real resonance that, you know, if you keep saying it again or saying it another way or, or finding, a, you know, a new um, sort of emotion that fits with it, it is part of trying to convince yourself. But I'm fascinated that when you, she gets to her last vision and, and, and obviously it reads differently in Old English, but um, that these words were said very distinctly yeah. and very powerfully. And in fact, they're the words that if you ask someone about Julian of Norwich, that they probably remember as well, mm -hmm. is that you know, everything will be well and That's all right, things yeah. will be well. All manner, um, of, things all manner well. of things should be well. And so even though she's repeating herself again, yeah. um, the fact that she says this is, you know, you will have tribulations, you will have these, but, yeah. but, um, and suddenly it is very distinct and very clear and enormously reassuring as well. Yeah, yeah, no, that's good. Um, the, I mentioned the Amy Laura Hall book, Laughing at the Devil, and she talks about her first time teaching Julian of Norwich or when she first put her on the syllabus. And she said, you know, she's teaching Christian ethics from the tradition and was looking for a female author. And a colleague said, uh, Julian of Norwich. And Amy says, you know, who? And, you know, you know, all will be well, all, all will be well, all manner of things will be well. And Amy's response is, I've never heard of her, and she sounds stupid. <laughs> um, and there's that sense in which, you know, all manner of things can be well, can also be, like, either it's a deep form of denial, clearly all is not well, um, clearly things are falling apart, or it can be, um, you know, holding on to that in the midst of all of this and in a way that sort of allows us to sort of continue and um, you know, keep getting out of bed even when things aren't well. You know, um, it mustn't have been much fun living in a locked room. Yeah. A yeah. Wall, not just a locked room, it's a walled room, isn't it? Yeah. It's walled up, walled out against the rest of the world. And the, and the interesting, you know, her, her theology, she, like, she didn't just sit there and write it down. She's working on this for decades. So it's, it's a carefully crafted theology but within that careful crafting, um, you sort of see her um, suddenly having moments of deep reassurance and closeness to God and then sort of falling away and having doubt. And then right at the end, um, she has doubt that all her, like, you know, uh, did any of these visions come from God? God gives her another vision saying they all came from God. So, um, you know, I don't know what you do with that, but it seemed to, it seemed to be enough for her. Well, thank you once again, uh, Michael, for those answers and for uh, taking the time to travel all the way across the city to this uh, far-flung edge of our uh, great metropolis. Um, but thank you for your, your insight and your wisdom. Uh, thank you for the work that uh, went into researching and preparing and uh, articulating and uh, sharing that with us this evening.